Mark 5, 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tomb, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd. Numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in, in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Amen. This has been the word of the Lord. We're in Luke chapter 5 this morning. Before Mark, say Luke, Pastor Allen is here, and they're in Luke at Warrendale Community Church. But we're not. We're in Mark, chapter 5. If you have not met him and his wife, Diane, or is it Diana? Diana. Please get by and meet them. I'm really glad that they're here. We've visited their services before, and they've been gracious to come visit us. Thank you, Gloria, for leading us in those two wonderful songs. Um, I found the Spanish one quite a bit easier than the Arabic on that second one. That's some fast language there, but that's, uh, we need that. That's wonderful. Um, Next week, we have a dedication of seven children to the Lord, and I am so excited to, to do that together with the church. It's not just going to be a dedication of the parents dedicating their children. The whole church dedicates ourselves to serve and minister to these children according to God's word, and some grand, grandparents will be there, and it's going to be awesome, so I'm really looking forward to that. Before we get to that, today, we are in a much, and a very serious passage about the conflict of Christ with demons. 
Now, we're modern people, right? We don't talk about demons very much. We don't hardly believe in things like demons, boogeymen or Satan, things like that. And to be fair, the whole topic has got a little bit weird in a lot of places, right? Um, where we lived in North Africa, they believe very much in demons, and it's a lot of traditional ideas about demons. Um, they believe that they live in the pipes of your house, and if you run hot water through the pipes, that they will be angry with you and cause you problems. They also have a common belief that they inhabit empty rooms, and if you go in or out of an empty room, you should say hello or goodbye to them, or they will again be unhappy with you, so you have to be friendly to the demons. Uh, they don't necessarily call them demons, they're a different category called jinn, but you know, it's similar sort of spirit beings. So there's a lot in the world, there's a lot of folk ideas about what the spirit world is like. We Christians have our own sort of things like this. Just last summer, we had an intern in Germany, and um, he has diabetes. I took him to an interdenominational um, evangelistic effort. Um, he was witnessing with a certain guy. This guy was from a certain persuasion of Christianity, heard he had diabetes, and began to pray that the God would cast out the demon of diabetes from my friend. And so there's a lot of funny ideas that aren't necessarily rooted in God's word about demons and about the spiritual forces of evil that are going on. This passage in particular, Mark 5, is the longest, most vivid description of a conflict of Christ with demons. And so it's appropriate that we would think about right now what does the word of God say about demons and spiritual powers. Now, to cover the whole thing would take a long time, but we're going to look in this passage about two things in particular. We're going to, look about, we're going to notice in chapter 5 the open works of Satan in your life and mine. We're also going to look at the subtle work of Satan in my life and yours. And thirdly, the power of Christ over Satan and his works. The reason is this, we are in a spiritual battle. God does not want us to be ignorant about the enemy's devices. If you consider 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul wrote, lest Satan should get an advantage over us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So to be ignorant of the spiritual world, which is the common direction, I think, for the West or for modern, modern people is to give our enemy an advantage over us. We sang, actually, in one of the songs about the enemy and what he would say. We've sort of made the enemy to be negative thoughts or um, low self-esteem, things like this that we have to overcome. This was mostly promoted by self-help books in the early 1900s that continued into a sort of mixture of Christianity and positive psychology. But the Word of God has something very different to say about it. In fact, we can only trust the Word of God on this topic because we cannot know anything about the spiritual world were it not for God to tell us. So as we pay attention to this, I, wanna, I want this to be a very serious and stern warning for the church. Because the New Testament, though we are freed from the power of Satan and the cross, and we're gonna talk about that, 
The New Testament over and over again warns the church about our enemy, the devil, and his devices that are at work in his church. So this is not a non-subject for Christians, and we're going to see why. So the first thing we're going to look at here in chapter 5 is the open works of Satan. If you look, just read the first few verses again. Now Jesus, if you remember last time, we were two weeks ago, we were in Mark chapter 4. They were coming across the Sea of Galilee. The storm came. Jesus calmed the storm. And, um, and he, he, he said this in verse 40 of the chapter before, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? So Mark is putting together the authority of Christ, not only over nature, but now in the spiritual world. And he comes to this town in the country of the Gerasenes. And um, in verse 2, well, it's in verse 3 through 5, actually, we're going to see the setting that he is walking into. So in verse 3, speaking of this demoniac or this person that was um, inhabited by a demon, it says, he lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. I want to notice a few things about the work, the open work of the devil. I mean, you could see this literally happening. This was not figurative. They were having this, the whole town was having this conflict with this man where they tried to bind him. And if you notice here, it says they couldn't bind him anymore. So there was a progressive sort of danger of possession in this man where they had at one point been able to control him with binding him. And then he became so otherworldly strong that they couldn't bind him anymore. So we learn, first of all, that the work of Satan in our lives is progressive. Once he gets a foothold in there, then it continues and, um, and it has a worsening sort of effect. Also, he was dangerous to everybody else in the town. And he was so dangerous that he had been expelled from the town, was living in caves that were serving as tombs. Also, we see the self-harm. It says in verse 5 that he was living here in the mountains and he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. And this is a contrast that I want you to see. The purposes of God in our lives are always two. Primarily and first, his glory. And secondly, our good. If God does anything for us, though it appears to be difficult, it is always for his glory first and for our good. We can count on that. The works of Satan are the opposite. They are for, and you might say the glory of Satan, but it's actually like this. It's for our glory and our hurt. And this is what you can see happening with this man, that he is hurting himself. And you might think at this point, this has very little to do with my life. I am not out of my mind. Um, nobody has tried to bind me since I was a small baby. And nobody has tried to send me out of town to wander around screaming and cutting myself. And we might distance ourselves from this situation and think that, I, you know, 
Um, I'm in charge of myself, no demonic voices coming out of me at this point, but I want to challenge you with this, to not think too quickly that we are not controlled or have not given some control to Satan in our lives. The New Testament letters to the churches are full of warnings about the temptation and the work of Satan even in the church. And I want to give you a few examples of what God's Word says about how Satan actually gains a foothold in our lives. So it is possible that in some beginning and even advanced stages, you have given Satan control over your life. This sounds like kind of stuff we don't talk about very often, doesn't it, in the West? But I want you to hear God's word on this, and I'm just going to give you five quick ways that God's word says that even Christians, people who follow Jesus, can give Satan control in their life. So listen to what Ephesians 4 24, or 25 through 27 says, Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So here he says, give no opportunity to the devil. And in two ways he mentions that the first is that Satan prompts us to lie. To lie comes from the father of lies. Now, Acts 5, there's a story in verse 3 where Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira, who had sold some of the property, said they were giving all of it to, to Christ, but were holding some back. And Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? So when we lie to God or to others, we are actually giving some control of our lives to Satan. Now, have you ever felt under the power of lies? And what I mean by that is you felt like you didn't even know why, but you were lying, and you could not tell the truth, and you saw this as a habit in your life. That you can't, this is self-destructive. This, this is not as obviously self-destructive as the man that was cutting himself, but it is destructive of relationships, it's destructive of your very soul. Secondly, in this passage, it says that we can sin, we can give Satan an opportunity by being sinfully angry. Not all anger is sin. He says, be angry and sin not, but don't let the wrath or the sun go down on your wrath. So there is a righteous anger, but the majority of our anger, I believe, is proud anger. It is anger motivated and said, fed by self and pride. Have you ever felt under the control of anger where you were shaking and could not stop being angry? This could very well be Satan through pride causing you and me to be under his control. It's almost a stereotype now of the angry dad, right, in our culture. An angry mother or an angry teenager is probably not far behind. So anger that we experience that destroys our relationships and destroys ourselves is actually giving Satan an opportunity in our life. Um, what about this one? Revelation 12.10 says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Satan 
can cause us to hear a voice of accusation against us even though we're forgiven. And he can, when we accuse our brothers and sisters who are also forgiven by Christ and we're focusing on that accusation, we are giving ourselves over to control of the spiritual powers of Satan. So feelings of defeat and discouragement and bitterness come from our enemy. The devil would love nothing more than for you to always be focused on your failures and on the failures of those around you that are following Jesus imperfectly. So Satan can get the advantage in causing us discouragement by accusing. How about this one, the fourth one, James 1, 13 through 16. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived. So our deceiver, the, de the deceiver, who is also the tempter, tempts us with lust and with desires that are also ours. So it's a mutual working of our flesh and the devil. He tempts us to lust. How many men are controlled by lust and porn, old and young alike? So and I'll give you one more. Mark 4, 14. We just read this two weeks ago about the sower that went out to sow seed. You remember what happened to the seed that fell on hard ground? God's, Jesus said this. It says, the sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown. So Satan can cause us to forget God's word. Do you ever wonder why you can remember some stupid movie that you saw years ago, but you can't remember what you read, read in God's word this morning? Now, it is a spiritual power that wants us to forget God's word. God told his people in Deuteronomy, take care lest you forget the Lord, your God, by not keeping his commandments. So Satan, our enemy, would cause us to forget, cause us to forget God. Now you might say, um, you know, a Christian, we cannot be possessed with demons because we are possessed by Christ. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And we can't have Holy Spirit, or we can't have evil spirits living in us. However, all of the things that I just read to you, these five warnings to the church were to Christians about how the devil works in your individual and church life. And it's all from God's word. So you might say then, what is the value of knowing that it's Satan behind these things? Right? What good does it do us? We're going to just go into left field somewhere talking about demons and devils and unseen beings. And, you know, we're going to get weird here. And what's the value of that? Can't I just say, well, I messed up and looked at that again and I need to quit that? Or, you know, I, I need to overcome this habit why, why can't we just talk about habits, and why can't we just talk about, you know, um, needing to do better or just, tr you know, trust Christ more and these kind of things? Well, the first reason I would say is because God's word repeats over and over that it is a spiritual battle we are in, and it points out who, the, who it is who's tempting. It's the devil. But secondly, I want to flip that question. 
And I think the answer will be more obvious and easier. What good does it do us to tell or to know the source of our blessings, that it's from God? Does that do us any good? Quite obviously, because who would we know who to thank if we didn't realize that all good things come from the Father of lights, of whom there is no shadow of turning? And so we know that good things come from God. Why do we, why do we need to know that? Because when we receive good, we turn back to him praise and thanks and honor and blessing. Similarly, to know where temptation comes from empowers us to direct not our praise, but our, the, fight, the fight, the battle against where the uh, attack is coming from. Let me give you a personal and very immediate illustration. Uh, my wife and I were in a bit of an argument this week. My children might remember it because they heard it. And we were, you know, arguing in ways that maybe if you're married you have before. Maybe, maybe you're, you don't argue in your marriage, but in mine sometimes it happens. And um, we, were, we were both being stubborn. And I was angry. And she was angry. And I was preparing for this sermon at the same time. And I thought, you know, suddenly it became obvious to me. She's not the enemy. She's not the one I should be directing this fight at. And in fact, I am not being strong in that I'm not giving up. I am being weak in that I am giving in to the temptation of pride and anger, ungodly, sinful anger to the devil, and I am allowing him to gain a foothold in my life and in my marriage. And so, as millennials do, I texted her, and I said, honey, I'm sorry. The devil does not want me and you to love each other and get along. But I do, and you do. And of course, she responded, um, as a good millennial would, texting me back and saying, I love you too, honey. And we, over text, got over it. Never talked about it again, face to face. <laughs> Praise the Lord for text message. So I expressed, I'm telling you the story to say that it helps me to know where the attack is coming from so that I can resist him, the devil, all right? Now, the application. Where have you given Satan control in your life this week? What is your area where he, he knows you're weak? Now, the reason that we're talking about a personified evil, we tend to think about good as Christians as personified. It's God, it's Jesus. But we don't tend to think about evil as a person. But the Bible is clear that the devil is the personification of evil and the origin of it. And so he knows where you are weak, and he will exploit that. So this is why in the church it is absolutely essential that we practice discipleship, that we practice spiritual friendship, that we don't expect that everything happened from the pulpit to teach us about the ways of God that we together in microgroups, friendships that join together against our enemy and with Christ can resist the devil, who can, who can, in places where we can openly talk about these struggles that we have against the powers of darkness. We need one another um, to work with Christ in this. So these are some of the open ways that Satan works in our lives. But I want to notice in chapter 5 some of the subtle ways, or one of the subtle ways that Satan works in our life. 
we looked at the setting of what was going on in this town before Jesus showed up. I want to look at the conflict. Look at verse 2. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him a man, there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. I notice here that the presence of Christ stirs up spiritual battles. Everywhere he would go, spiritual, you know, it's like stirring the pot, and they came out of everywhere. Jump with me down to verse 8. It says that the first thing Jesus said to him is, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So you can imagine, Jesus steps out of the boat, this guy, this dangerous, strong, possessed person, out of control and absolutely unpredictable, is coming down the hill at him, speaking in these voices of demons. Jesus' first words are, come out of him, you unclean spirit. Jumping back to verse 6, it says, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice. So he's answering, falling down before him is the word that means worshiping. It's the word that means to bow. And so this man, possessed by these demons, totally being controlled by the demons, you know, the demons, every time they recognize Jesus, every time, they weren't confused about it the way the Pharisees and Sadducees and the townspeople were who were trying to figure out who is this guy. They came and bowed before him in verse 6, and they began to say this, and this is amazing what they say. If you look in verse 7, it says, they were crying with a loud voice, what have you to do with me? And they know his name, Jesus, son of the most high God. They knew his position, who he was, not just his name, but who he was. And then look what they say here. This is the, this is the, the weirdest thing, I think, maybe in the whole Bible. I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. So demons adjuring Jesus in the name of God to not torment them. That's very strange. Well, in the spirit world, it's very common to adjure someone or to command them by the higher power. So they were commanding him by his father, by God himself. And what were they saying? Do not torment me. Now, um, in verse 9, we're going to understand, 10, we're going to understand a little bit more what that means. And Jesus asked them, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. This word Legion, it means thousands. There were different numbers that people think it meant, but in the Roman time, it meant thousands. So possibly this man was inhabited or being controlled by thousands of demons. And then in verse 10, and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Some translations say not to send them to the abyss. Uh, Maybe that's a reference to Revelation chapter 20 when um, God sends Satan and his demons forever into the abyss and they knew it wasn't their time to be destroyed yet. So they said, don't torment us and don't send us out here. It probably means don't send us just out of this region where they were working. Possibly demons have an actual region where they are given responsibility for Maybe a a more amazing thing is in verse 13, it says, so he gave them permission. The demon's asking something from Jesus, and you'd think Jesus would say, I'm not listening to you guys. You're demons. But he gives them permission. We're going to see that three times in this very short passage, people ask something of Jesus. And at the end, we're going to look at why Jesus permitted this, why he then permitted Uh, the words of the townspeople who asked him to leave and why he did not permit the request 
of the, the healed demoniac when he said, can I go with you? So there were 2,000 pigs there. Mark was very specific about the number of pigs. And he says there was about 2,000. I asked my sister who raises pigs how much you can sell a pig for in today's market. And so 2,000 pigs would be about a million dollars. So that's a lot of money. The people who had invested in this town, there's not one man that owned 2,000 pigs in this town. This was a co-op of the whole town, and this was their future. This was their investment. This was their 401k, plus the equity in their house, um, plus, I don't know, what do you guys do for investments? I don't know. This was everything they had invested. Timeshare, I hope nobody does that. But anyway, this was all of their investment, 2,000 pigs, and they had organized themselves to take care of these pigs. So they had different people would take different turns, and they were specializing in pigs, and then they would sure, for sure sell these pigs. Not one town can eat 2,000 pigs. So they're selling these pigs in the whole region. This was like the pig-selling capital of the area, and this was how they were maybe rich, but at least this is how they're feeding their family. All of them run headlong into the sea. And that day, all the financial gain and investment for the future of this town disappeared into the Sea of Galilee. Now here's where the, the subtle conflict of the, spirit, of, of the devil happens. And what I would like in verse 14 through 17 as we read this is to recognize the subtle work of the enemy in your life. Look what it says in verse 14 to 17. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that was happening. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now in verse 16, the shepherds of the pigs are going to describe with you know, with all of what they were looking at, what was going on. So in verse 16, those who had seen it described it to them, what had happened and to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. Notice he says there, and to the pigs. This is what happened to this demon-possessed man. He was crazy. He was cutting himself. He was somebody's dad probably, somebody's son, somebody's brother, somebody's uncle, and he had been cast out of the city a long time ago, but now here he is. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, calmly listening learning, clothed. I imagine the disciples gave him some clothes. It was the first uh, clothed ministry, maybe, in the New Testament. So they gave him clothes, and he's sitting there, and it's obvious he's been healed. So they told him, this is what happened to him, and now this is what happened to our pigs. And here they are, in the water, dead. No time to get them out of there to slaughter them and take them to the towns. This meat will go bad. We can't even rescue 10% of this. Talking about financial crash of 2007, this was worse. It was down to almost nothing that they could possibly salvage. Maybe some bacon for tomorrow's breakfast, that's it. And they described to them what would happen. Now look in verse 17, how they responded. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So here's the subtle work of Satan, that he would cause us to value pigs more than a visit from the Lord of life who came to our town, to cause us to value pigs more than a brother who has been healed and saved, to cause us to value the things that we have 
more than God himself, that they would actually ask him to leave. Now, before you think, I'm not like that, you say, right? We have not asked Jesus to leave. In fact, I came here. This is where we hear about Jesus, and this is where we talk about Jesus. I have not asked him to leave. Maybe this, the conflict that was going on in these people um, was that they were a respectable people. They were a moral people. They didn't allow that sort of craziness in their town. In fact, they were a very um, organized group of people, and they were responsible. They cared for their children. They set aside for the future. They um, worked together, meaning that they weren't always fighting. They had cooperation. They had organized themselves into quite the nice little town. They probably even had subdivisions with HOAs, where all of the grass had to be kept exactly how it should be. They had financial investors. They had people who would take the pigs to the market. They had tr truckers. They had all that they needed to have a um, good community. And Jesus came here and he messed it up. They appeared to be a thriving society, but what was happening that they could not recognize was that the work of God when it landed, that they could not even recognize the work of God when it landed on their shores. They valued themselves, their work, their abilities to provide over God and his work and his ability to provide. They were living without God, but they couldn't see their desperate need for God. They didn't recognize the enemy Satan had even taken control of their values and their minds just the same as he had of the crazy one who was out living in the tombs and cutting himself. Here is the words of Paul to the church. He says in 2 Corinthians 11:3, I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve and his craftiness, your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity and the purity that is toward Christ. Do you see what he says here? Paul, talking to believers in the church, said, I fear that the serpent, that Satan, who beguiled Eve, who lied and deceived him, would or her, would deceive your minds by corrupting you from the simplicity and purity that is in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 3.5, for this reason, Paul said, when I could no longer, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So there is a subtle work of Satan that the New Testament talks about that corrupts our minds away from Christ and toward a moral society that lives in such a way that you would think that they had God, but they're actually living godlessly. The devil would like nothing more than to make you a moral people, responsibly taking care of your family, investing wisely for the future, and totally missing the surpassing value of the cross of Christ. He wants you to trade in the surpassing value of Christ for all things temporal. So, um, let me give you two illustrations about this. A pastor in 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia wrote um, about 50 years ago, imagined what it would look like if the devil took control of Philadelphia. This is what he said. If Satan took control of Philadelphia, all the bars would close. 
Pornography would be banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. The subtle work of Christ is to distract us from our desperate need for Christ. The subtle work of the devil. Did I say the subtle work of Christ? That's wrong. The subtle work of Satan is to distract us from our desperate need of Christ by our comfortable and moral lives. Another illustration, John Bunyan wrote a second book, most printed in the world next to the Bible, The Pilgrim's Progress. And in The Pilgrim's Progress, he talks about Christian who had left the city of destruction. And he was on his way to the wicker gate. If you've never read it, you need to read it. It's a wonderful allegory of the Christian life. And on his way to the wicker gate, evangelists had told him, if you'll go to that gate, you will meet the one who will free you of the burden of sin that you're carrying. On the way to the gate, he was stopped by a finely dressed man. This man was named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Mr. Worldly Wise Man was from the village of morality. And the following quote is taken from chapter 3 of that book in The Pilgrim's Progress. I'm going to try to read it off my phone here. Um, Mr. Worldly Wise Man said this to Christian. Listen to me, I am older and more experienced than you. If you continue in this direction, you are likely to experience wearsome, wearisomeness, painfulness, hunger, perils, nakedness, swords, lions, dragons, darkness, and in a word, death, and who knows what else. Worldly wise man looked Christian directly in the eye and said, these things are certainly true and have been confirmed by the testimony of many pilgrims just like yourself. So why would a man so carelessly place himself in danger? by listening to a stranger like this man evangelist. Christian replied, you don't understand, sir. This burden on my back is more terrible to me than all the things you have mentioned. He shook his head. No, I have given this thought, and I don't care what perils I meet along the way, as long as eventually I can be delivered from my burden. Mr. Worldly Wise Man responded, but why do you seek relief this way, he said. By putting yourself in the path of so many dangers to get it, if you had enough patience to listen to me, I could tell you how to find what you are looking for without all the risks. You'll run along the way you're choosing to go. You see, the remedy I'm suggesting is nearby, and instead of dangers, it offers safety, friendship, and contentment. Christian eagerly looked at worldly wise man. Please, sir, tell me the secret. Why, the answer lies just a short distance away in the village named Morality. There, ask after a gentleman by the name of Legality. He is a very judicious man and a man of a very good name. He has skill to help men off with such burden as yours from their shoulders. Christian decided to take Mr. Worldly Wise Man's advice. And he makes his way toward this town of... Um, of, what's the, what's the name of the town? Morality, thanks so much. He makes his way to the town of Morality, and it, on his way to the town, the mountain of Sinai that was on the way almost collapsed and killed him. And as he was cowering under the law that he was feeling, Evangelist finds him in this precarious position. And he gives him, 
he gives him this statement that I want to read for you that is poignant and powerful. Evangelist rebukes Christian for having tried morality as his way to escape, um, to get the sin off of his back. And, and this is what he says. He says, Be, pay careful attention to the things I'm going to tell you. I'm going to show you who it is that deluded you and who it was he sent you to. The man who met you is one worldly wise man, and rightly he is called by his name, partly because he has an appetite only for the doctrine of this world. Listen to this next line. This is why he always goes to the town of morality to church, because he loves the doctrine taught there, because he thinks it saves him best from the cross. Now, John Bunyan wrote this hundreds of years ago. Listen to what he says. He goes to church because he loves the doctrine taught there because he thinks it saves him best from the cross. The people of this town were not looking for relief from the oppression of Satan and the burden of their sin. They were looking for an investment in pigs. That's what they were concerned with. They wanted relief from anything that would be a cross to bear, that would be difficult. And so they asked Jesus to leave. How could we apply this? I think now there are three things in this man's counsel that um, evangelist said. He said, you must utterly detest the three things about Mr. Worldly Wise Man's counsel. First, detest his ability to turn you away, that you should go and get sidetracked. I find this to be true in my life. The most powerful thing that the Satan can use is comfort and success to turn me away from my need for Christ. I should detest it. He says this, detest also the way he works to portray the cross as odious to you. And lastly, detest that he points you in the direction which leads you to death. What does it cost you to follow Jesus and invite him into your life, into your town? That cost is not odious. We follow the subtle work of Satan when we despise the cost of discipleship, when we despise the cost of the pigs. He is the treasure. We should desire him more than pigs. So I know you often don't think of all of the treasures that you've amassed as pigs, and I don't either. But think of them like that for a second. They're just pigs. Would you trade them for Jesus? It is a subtle trick of Satan to cause us to think that our goodness, our own morality, and our organized society and our good character is at all saving and that we don't need Christ. We should of all people, just like the demoniac, be crying out, Christ, save me. Save me from not the man I've been, but from the man I still am today. Last thing that we're gonna see in this story, and it's gonna just be two or three minutes, is the power of Christ to cause the work of Satan to retreat. Look at what it says. Um, in verse 18, now they asked him to leave in verse 17, and in verse 18 it says, and as he was getting into the boat, so he granted them this permission. Demons ask him to go into the pigs, grants them permission. Men of this town ask him, please leave. He gets in the boat to leave. Shortest mission trip ever. Jesus got off the boat, healed one man, taught him for a couple minutes, and by the time they asked him to leave, and he's headed back to the other side. Now this the, the thing that we may not realize is the one side of town, that, or the one side of the, the sea, 
was Gentile land where he was, and he was coming from the Jewish land. So listen to what this Gentile said to him in verse 18. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might go with him, and he did not permit him. So this is the first time he said no. You know, if you were me, we would say no to the demons, no to the bad people in the town, yes to the guy who wants to follow. No, he said no to that guy. Look what he says to him. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, this is, means 10 cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And look at the result of that. Everyone marveled. So the work of God is pushing back and causing the retreat of Satan and his work because Satan and his work is to keep people ignorant of Jesus. So why? God tends to allow rebellion until it's time of judgment, but he tends to tell his children no quite often, doesn't he? He tells the demons, okay, he allows it. He tells the townspeople, okay, I'll leave. But he tells his newly born son, no. God often tells us no. Why? Jesus leads those he cares for, and he instructs us and does what's good for us because we have submitted ourselves to him. And that means we have submitted ourselves to his good will. And his will is good for us every time. So what have you asked that God has not granted? He has a plan. He is doing something. God is sending our church on a mission, and we need to trust his power. We need to value Christ above our pigs. We need to recognize his work, and we need to recognize the work of Satan that would seek to distract us. So here's my... Here's the challenge I think that we get. First of all, we get a great comfort that the work of Christ is more powerful than the work of Satan in our lives. We can talk about Satan, and we must, but the work of Christ is more powerful, infinitely more powerful, to overcome the work of Satan. Maybe as we talked about the first point, you can recognize some of the ways that you've given Satan control over your life. Today, we need Christ. We need him every hour. We need him every minute. And we can find relief from sin only in Christ, not from good morality and not from the wisdom of this world. Especially, may the subtlety of Satan uh, be overcome with the clear knowledge of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have done a great work in our midst. And I pray, Lord, that we would recognize your work Lord, take all of our pigs, have them, drive them into the sea if you would. Only may we go with you. Only may we recognize your, your work and may we invite you into our community. In Jesus' name.